How you guys doing? Good? Hey, before we jump in this morning, we're going to uh, be looking at the subject. I'll, I'll talk about that more in just a second. Um, I want to reiterate what Cameron mentioned as far as the parent meeting that we have. Um, in short, I just want to give a little bit of a background as to why we do this and why we kind of do it on Sundays. It's, I think it's important, especially for parents to know. Um, if, uh, for one, our church is kind of a unique in the way our children's ministry operates. Um, most of the workers that we have that help out for our children's ministry, we, we typically on any Sunday have between 100 to 150 little kids uh, back there. Um, if you've never been back there, it can be totally organized chaos. Um, we have a lot of great people that help out, but most of them are actually college-age students um, or they're post-college people. So a lot of times over summer, a lot of them end up leaving. Um, we've actually connected with a lot of other different um, children's ministry around San Luis Obispo and the Central Coast, and most children's ministry actually have um, older people that are involved in helping out and working in there. I mean, for example, maybe some of you have been brought up in a church, and you might have had that children's ministry teacher that had been there for like the past, you know, two decades, all right? We don't have that. Like, we literally, um, by and large, our church, the way that it operates is almost every four to six years, about 80% of our entire church is literally brand new. So what that means, kind of on the ground, is that um, within the next six years, over 80% of you guys will no longer be in San Luis Obispo, or no longer in this church. Maybe in the area in the Central Coast, but you'll live someplace else where commuting into San Luis may be challenging or difficult for you. But that's kind of the way it is. So what that means is the way that we do children's ministry really needs to be participatory, meaning as a community of families working together, we've got to all kind of work together. I mean, we've got to know what's going on. We want you to know what's going on. So we try to provide as much information for you as, as we can. So um, if you are part of this church, if you want to be part of this church and you've got kids, what well, we really encourage you to just go back there and be part of that, um, hear what's happening, figure out ways in which you can be involved. Um, we ask for parents to you know, get involved, and we kind of lay that out for you, kind of share what that looks like. Um, because at the end of the day, as a church, you know, a lot of times churches, the way they operate is they have a really big staff, and you can go and just drop your kids off, and they're going to be well taken care of because you've got this massive staff. So in other words, what you have is sort of this professional class of people that do all the ministry, all, do all the work, and then you've got the rest of the people that just sort of take advantage of the ministry opportunities that are there. Uh, we, we simply do not operate that way. Um, we just can't. We don't, we're not financially able to operate that way. So what that means is as a church, we've got to work together. And that's what we've tried to foster and cultivate within our church. And we know that might be different than maybe, maybe the ways in which other churches might operate. Um, but it's a way for us to kind of work as a family uh, to help serve the needs of each other. In this particular case, to serve the needs of the kids. So um, what I'm going to do in a second, I'm going to have all you guys stand up and um, if you're a parent, um, you don't, both parents don't have to go, just one can go, um, kind of hear what's going on. Again, like if you're a guest, there's no obligation for you to give. Uh, we realize, obviously, having this uh, parent meeting on a Sunday can be radically um, inconvenient, especially if you come and you're like, I want to go to church, uh, but I've got to go to this meeting. Why do we do it on Sunday morning? Well, because we already have children's ministry available for you. Um, it's, we, it's kind of the, the best of not the best options. So that's why. Um, and it's only one time a year. So um, I'm going to have you guys all stand in just a second. So one last time, have you all stand. Um, and while you stand, you can turn around and say hi to someone you haven't met yet. So this gives you a little bit extended time to say hi to someone. And if you're a parent and you want to go there, um, you can slip out right now so it doesn't feel awkward. Because if I were to have you stand up right now and be like, bye, um, might make you feel a little awkward. We don't want to make you feel awkward. So this is a more natural way. So on the count of three, y'all stand up, turn around, say hi to someone. If you're a parent and you'd like to go, go ahead, go. One, two, three.
All right, all right. Why don't y'all sit? Why don't y'all sit? If you guys don't have Bibles, um, while you guys are sitting, um, raise your hand. We've got some ushers in the back. We'd love to get you guys Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll have some ushers get you guys a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, um, feel free to keep this. It's our gift to you guys. We want you all to have a Bible. So in short, um, what we're going to be doing today, we're going to be going kind of week two of a brand new series that we started last week. And we started a brand new series going through looking at the person and really the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, if I were to kind of ask you guys, out of curiosity, how many of you have actually devoted time in your life uh, as a Christian, or maybe if you're here, you're a skeptic, or maybe if you're here, you're not even a Christian, you're just kind of uh, entertaining Christianity and trying to understand a little bit of what, what it's about. How many of you actually spent some time listening to a podcast, uh, reading a book, an ebook, whatever, watching a video about the life of Jesus? How many of you have actually read, listened to, investigated the life of Jesus? Raise your hand really, really high. Okay, that's probably most of you guys. Um, how many of you, I want to extend that question even further, how many of you have actually done the exact same thing, um, but not with Jesus, but with, with specifically the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand. Specifically the Holy Spirit. You've investigated some time. Okay, energy. So probably about half of you, uh, the first of which is probably more 80, 90%. This next question was obviously around 50%. What that means is that the person of the Holy Spirit is one part of what we call the member of the Trinity, that oftentimes doesn't get a lot of interest uh, for whatever the reason is. And on some extreme cases, gets way too much interest. And so typically, when we talk about the subject of the person of the Holy Spirit, typically one or two of reactions begin to kind of surface. On the one hand, there is sort of a skepticism where people break out in hives, get a little bit nervous because they begin to think that things are going to get kind of weird now. Are people going to start swinging from chandeliers? Are people going to start, you know, abruptly speaking in tongues? What type of weird, strange phenomenon is going to happen within the church service that's now talking about the Holy Spirit? The flip side of that is sort of a reaction of really great excitement. Like, yes, finally, Calvary Slow is going Pentecostal. We've been waiting, praying for this day for a really long time. Finally, they're going to be moving in the Holy Spirit. But typically what can happen, we have one of these two extremes, and that can lead to one or two extremes. On the one hand is you have people that focus on the Holy Spirit have the tendency to minimize teaching and the information of the Word of God. So a lot of the emphasis could be upon subjective experience with God, spontaneity, uh, wanting to hear and feel the presence of God. We say things like, you know, God, we want your Spirit to be here. Uh, because on a very real sense, you know, we would say the Spirit of God is already here. But what do we mean when we say, God, we want your Spirit to be here? Really, just, it's, really it's a prayer asking God to have his manifest, his felt presence to be here. So on the other end of this spectrum is sort of churches that tend to focus on Bible. There's an emphasis. In fact, some church names even have the name Bible Church in the name. And so the emphasis there underscored is this idea that we spend time focusing on the Bible. We teach through the Bible. And there is a tendency to kind of look down upon or belittle emotional, subjective experience. And what we want to basically establish as a church and say that as a church, and again, this is not news, it's something we've always been about, we want to be really both, to be really quite frank. We want to be a church that is about the Bible. We love the scriptures. We invest our hearts, our minds, our understanding in letting the scriptures inform us. One of the reasons why we typically, on Sunday mornings, especially as we gather, we take books of the Bible, we teach to them expositionally, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through everything within that passage. And 
uh, connect that to the larger theme of the Bible. And yet at the same time, we also are people that want to have great expectancy that God's manifest, felt presence will be here. I mean, let me put it this way. At the end of the day, is it okay for Christians to have heightened experience and emotions for God? Some would be like, well, yeah, but we should think more about God than feel more about God. Some would be like, no, you should feel more about God and not think more about God. So there seems to be sort of this conflict between thinking and understanding and the intellect and those things which can be a little bit more predictable versus that which is more felt, more uh, intuited, that which is uh, less predictable. And what I would suggest is that probably a better perspective would be to say that we want to be a church that loves, studies, invests our heart and our minds in terms of understanding what God has to say through Scripture, but also we want to be a church that feels deeply about these things. Look, let me put it this way. If God really is God, and if God is great, if God's love is enormous for us, Shouldn't that truth absolutely throttle us to the point where we are emotionally moved? I mean, at the end of the day, if that thought of God loving us just leaves us sort of indifferent, or like, hey, whatever, that's cool, it's awesome, that's weird. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, honestly, in a relationship between, say, for example, a husband and wife, if their love is white hot and passionate for each other and in the exchange of information that I'm deeply in love with you and I'm deeply in love with you and there is no emotional response or action, we would look at that and be like, there's something dysfunctional and broken about that. So why is it that oftentimes when it comes to God, we have this mentality was like, we should just think deeply about God but not feel too deeply about God. Otherwise, we'll teeter off, or off into kind of emotionalism. What I would suggest is that the more we understand intellectually about the greatness of God, the more we should feel passionately about God. I don't think these two things should be separated from each other. In fact, one of the writings that's really helped me out a lot, I'm not going to really talk too much about it, but I would just suggest as some side reading for you, it's uh, uh, a little treatise that was actually written by Jonathan Edwards. He's one of the greatest theologians in America. It was called A Treatise on Religious Affections, which is hugely helpful for me. Now, uh, I'm not going to go into any further deep uh, information about that. I would just suggest search it. Find it on the internet, read it. There might even be some sort of an ebook available that you guys can check it out. But it's really helpful. But here's what I want to suggest. Is that when we begin to talk about the Holy Spirit, I just want to simply point out there are two major extremes that oftentimes arise when we're thinking about the person of the Holy Spirit. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to spend some weeks understanding not only the person of the Holy Spirit, but also the work of the Holy Spirit, why this is so important. So I'm going to get a little bit theological today with you guys, so hopefully that is okay. If it's not okay, too bad, we're going to still do it. But the point of the matter is I, I want to at least kind of get your mind thinking about who God is from a theological perspective, but I, I don't want to leave it there in terms of a lecture or dry, but I want to really connect it with a bigger picture of like why is this subject so important to us? So I to, I'm going to end on more of a very practical note as to how and why this makes a lot of sense. Because look, at the end of the day, I realize many of us would come to a gathering like this, and many of us, some of us are maybe doing great, our lives are fine, everything's sort of synchronized, everything's sort of in harmony in our lives. But some of you guys, your lives are falling apart. The fact of the matter is, is not everything is good. If someone were to ask you if everything okay, we typically give the patented American answer like, yeah, I'm great, or California answer. But the reality is beneath that superficial response is sort of this deep pain of hurt and sorrow and question and confusion and disorientation in our lives that 
oftentimes we don't give honest answers because we're afraid of going too deep. We're afraid of the emotion that might emerge spontaneously out from the deep wells of our hearts because we carry these things around. What I want to suggest is that understanding who the Holy Spirit is deeply practical to God reorienting our lives from its disorienting realities. That God wants to bring order in our lives in those areas where there's nothing but chaos and disorder. And this is who the Holy Spirit is. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He's not just simply an abstract notion, even though it may be, he may be very difficult to really try to understand and wrap our minds around. So with that being said, for example, we've got to first of all just understand some of the challenges with regard of understanding who the Holy Spirit is. Because in the Christian context, we would basically say that as Christians, we are what's typically called monotheistic. That just simply means we believe in one God. There's basically three major monotheistic religions in the world today. There's uh, Islam, there's Judaism, and there's Christianity. And all that simply means is that each one of those religions or groups associate that the head of their understanding of God is just one God. It's not a pantheon of God. It's not multiplicity of God. It's just one God. But what we would say, where we would be distinct, and it's kind of where similarities break down is at that point, but beyond that, what we would say is as Christians, we believe in one God, one God that has been revealed in three distinct personages or persons. We would call that Trinity. Someone would argue and say that the word Trinity is not anywhere in the Bible, and it would be absolutely correct. That word does not appear. The word Trinity just simply is a way of trying to put a word to or concept to ideas that arise in the Bible. And what we see that arises in the Bible is that we see this one God revealing himself in three distinct ways. We would say God or Yahweh reveals himself as Father. And frankly, when we talk about God as Father, that's not that difficult for us to understand because we have an analog in our culture to identify God as Father. So in other words, most of us, all of us, have dads or had a dad or many of us are going to be a dad. So the concept of Father, God as Father, is not that difficult for us to understand. It may be challenging for us to understand because some of us have been shaped in understanding of fatherhood by way of a faulty or dysfunctional or broken dad, meaning that your dad was not a really good dad, and so when you think about God as Father, you might have some hang-ups. But nonetheless, the analogy is there. Secondly, we can think about Jesus as Son. Again, that's not that difficult for us to understand because we have an, an analog within our world in which we can look at, we understand to some degree what sonship is. But when we talk about God as Holy Spirit, like what do we have to compare that to? Like we live in a world that we touch and we taste and we feel and we smell and we are part of a physical, tangible reality. And when we begin to talk about God as intangible, like we, we don't really have anything to compare it to. So the scripture actually uses language that is kind of similar, but very dissimilar in some ways. And one of the examples that comes to my mind is wind. You might not know exactly what wind is, but we can see the effects of wind. So in other words, we can talk about what the Holy Spirit does. And it's far easier to talk about what the Holy Spirit does than it is to talk about who the Holy Spirit is. Does that make sense? So we can talk about the effects or what the Holy Spirit does or ways in which the Holy Spirit works. That's way easier to describe or talk about than who the Holy Spirit is. Because we can look at some of the impacts. We can look at the effect that the Holy Spirit has upon our lives. In the same way that we can look at the effect of a tornado, that for some reason, tornadoes always seem to set down or land or destroy mobile home parks. And 
we can look at the fact that when a tornado comes through, it will destroy something or has the ability to uproot a tree or tear down power lines. So you can look at the effect of a tornado and say, tornado was here, even though necessarily you don't see the wind. You might see the elements that are picked up in the wind, but we don't necessarily see the wind itself, but we see the impact or the effect of the wind. So the Holy Spirit, it's easier to talk about what he does than is to actually talk about who he is. But what I want to try to do, as best as I can, is talk about who he is. And there are passages that will allow us sort of a, a window to understand a little bit about who he is. And like I said at the end, I want to really kind of talk a little bit about why this is so significant, not to simply leave you with sort of a theological information to kind of filter through and work through, but I want to try to tie up some loose ends and hopefully bring it home to deeply personal, deeply um, impacting realities that has the power to reshape you, has the power to sustain you, has the power to help you in the midst of struggle and challenge. So what I want to do in terms of talking about the Holy Spirit today, um, last week we looked a little bit at the Holy Spirit, kind of in a big, broad, general overview. We kind of finished with the question of uh, what does it look like to actually be thirsty for this God that promises to give life and water to our weariness. Um, But today what I want to do is I want to look at really the larger picture of the Holy Spirit and God. How does the Holy Spirit relate to God? God, Yahweh. So I want to look at really two specific things. First of all, we'll take a look at the attributes um, of this Holy Spirit. So we'll take a look at it and describe it this way, that the attributes of Yahweh are actually shared by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, attributes that are basically associated with Yahweh are also declared to be attributes that the Holy Spirit himself also operates in. Does that make sense? So we'll take a look at four of those. First of all, again, these are kind of big words, so bear with me. Um, If you're already familiar with some of these big words, our slide's kind of chunking. Kind of, sorry. didn't mean to draw attention to you, but... um, Oh, there we go. They're working, sorry. Um, Just totally forget that'll happen. Um, sometimes, sometimes it goes out, I'm serious. But the point of the matter is, is that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, what we want to understand is a little bit about who he is and understand some of the attributes that he puts on display. So one of the very first things that we notice about God, and again, these are kind of big words, is the eternality of God. What that simply means is a big theological word that describes God as being eternal. It means that God has no beginning, no end. God wasn't born unlike us. We were born unlike us. You know, we had a place in time where we started, we typically call that, you know, either birthday or if you get kind of creepy, like the point of conception, right? Mom and dad want to embarrass you, like, yeah, you were conceived on the night of, and you're like, oh, mom, stop. Um, But the point of the matter is, is like, uh, we have typically a day in which we determine this is when I came into this world, came into being. Uh, Unlike God, God never had a point of being, coming into being. He was always, always was, will always be. So in other words, we describe this as the eternality of God. But the Holy Spirit is also given the uh, characteristic attribute of this eternality. So, for example, Hebrews chapter four, uh, 9, verse 14 says this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit... I'm just going to stop right there because the main thing I just want to emphasize is that the idea of the eternality of God is also associated to or ascribed to the Holy Spirit. So we know that the Holy Spirit, whoever he is, has this characteristic about him that is... Eternal or everlasting, no beginning, no end. He just is. This is what we see, first of all, in terms of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, whoever this Holy Spirit is, we also know that he shares an attribute with God that's, uh, next slide, that's also described as omnipresence. Again, another big word, but break it down. Omni just simply means all or everything. Um, and the idea of presence is that God's presence 
is everywhere. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit's presence is everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell or the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand will uphold me. And the teaching that's basically being conveyed here through this psalm, psalm this, is that the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, is a presence of God. We saw last week a guy by the name of Gordon Fee, a great scholar, great theologian, great New Testament scholar, theologian, uh, described the Holy Spirit as being God's empowering presence. So this empowering presence of God shares this quality or attribute of God, which we would describe as omnipresence. In other words, Holy Spirit is everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere you go, there's no place that you cannot go. That's the whole point of Psalm 139, the musings of the psalmist, is that no matter where I go, he's being overwhelmed with the reality that God is always there. If I go down to the grave, if I go to the heights of heaven, if I take the, the, um, the uh, one of the pictures is if I take the, the, the rays of the morning or the wings of the morning and some kind of describe the wings of the morning as basically, if I can, if I can somehow harness a beam of light and let that beam of light take me wherever it goes, no matter how far out it goes, God's presence is there. And for some, that is absolutely terrifying. Uh, for people that desperately want to emancipate themselves from God, that's terrifying. For people that are ashamed or in despair over the brokenness or the sinfulness or the rebelliousness of their heart, that's a terrifying reality. Uh, it's, it's kind of the idea that God is sort of this cosmic voyeur. He's constantly watching, looking, scoping, viewing in on your life. He's just simply kind of this weird uh, being that is always intrigued by who you are and that is very unnerving to a lot of people. So that concept of God's presence being everywhere is freakish. If you don't value, if you want to run from, if you want to emancipate yourself from God. But if, on the other hand, you recognize in your loneliness there is a place to be found, there's a place to call home, if in your desperateness there is a place, there's a God that loves you, if in moments of your life of brokenness you have a God that can put your life back together again, no matter how far down you go, no matter how high up you travel, this God is always everywhere, wherever you're at. There's not one place, not one area in your life that God cannot be found. It's exceptionally good news. Because what that means is you are never, ever alone. What that means is that in the path of deepest, darkest suffering, no matter what types of circumstances you've gone through, no matter what type of path, way, or valley of death, the way the psalmist would describe, no matter where you go, no matter how dark it may seem, God says he's there. That's comforting. It's comfort for weary souls. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is attributed with this sense of omnipresence. Thirdly, uh, we see that he's got, share, the shares with God, uh, Yahweh, this omnipotence. And again, omnipotence, what does that mean? Uh, all potent, all potency, all power. It's the idea of the uh, Holy Spirit has all power. One of the ways in which we see this highlighted in the New Testament is when uh, the angel comes to young Mary. And uh, I'll, just, I'll read you the story. Uh, that up there doesn't have all of it. I'll just read kind of the larger path, uh, passage of this and just listen along. Uh, Luke chapter 1 says this, referring to Mary. He says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God 
will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over Israel forever. The kingdom will never have an end. Mary then asked the angel, but how can this happen? And she basically presents the problem. It's not a small problem, by the way. It's a really, really, really big problem. She's like, how is it possible that I'm going to have a child? She's like, we've got one problem. I'm, I'm, I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. This is impossible. There's no possible way I can have a child. But how is this going to be done? And this is what the answer comes back. It says, goes on to finish this little section here. And then the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the image, the picture is this, is that God will take this impossibility and turn it around, bring it into some form of possibility. How is the question? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And again, what, what I love about this is there's nothing crass about this. There's been all sorts of crass things that have been said about this, about the Holy Spirit somehow impregnating uh, young Virgin Mary. There's nothing crass, nothing weird about this. This is simply God giving life to where there was nothing but non-life before. There was no life before, no possibility of life. God simply giving life to where there was no life. This is the picture. How? Holy Spirit. This is how God moves, how God works. It's the Holy Spirit that is bringing life to where there was nothing but non-life or death or brokenness. So fourthly, we see that also the Holy Spirit shares with God this sense of omniscience. In other words, the idea is knowing all things. The Holy Spirit knows all things particularly knows all things about God. If you think about this, this is kind of fascinating because all of us, with our combined knowledge and information put together, you know, life skills and street smarts and all this other type of stuff that we would have, we would still not be really super all smart and omniscient. We would, there'd be lots of gaps. Now, some of us might have more street smarts than others. Some of us might have more book smarts than others. Some of us might have more smarts in other ways than others. But the fact of the matter is, there's gaps in our understanding, and there's gaps even in our application of understanding, which would be called wisdom, or how we deal with knowledge. But what we have is God, who's this repository of knowledge and wisdom and understanding of all things. God created all things. So the question is, how do we tap into the heart, the knowledge, the mind, the thoughts, the secrets of God? And the Bible actually answers that for us and says it's the Holy Spirit that reveals these things. Listen to how Paul would put this in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, God revealed these things to us by his Spirit. And he just finished talking about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us on the cross and God's plan of salvation and how important that was and that is really for our salvation. But at the same time, it's complete foolishness to those that, that, are, that are not saved. So when a non-Christian hears God's plan that, hey, look, God, by the way, is going to save the world through a crucified Messiah. Like, if you scratch your head over that and think that's ridiculous, you're totally right. It is absolutely ridiculous. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. That's Paul's words. In other words, the idea is that which seems implausible to us. Because the way that we would think a king comes to power is the way that ISIS come to power. With a sword. With an AK-47, or with power, or violence, or bloodshed, but not the way King Jesus comes to power. He doesn't come to shed blood. He comes to have his blood shed for his enemies. This is totally countercultural to the way in which Rome ever operated. It's countercultural to the way any of us ever operate. We operate according to kind of a mentality that says if somebody 
harms you, you harm them back. If somebody does something wrong to you, do wrong back to them. You double up and do wrong, more wrong back to them. Jesus says, here's what I've done. I've come into this world not to bring crushing and bloodshed, but to bear crushing and their bloodshed will be upon me. Paul would say, that's, that's foolishness. How, how, do we, how do we know? How do we make sense of this reality as being God's, pla- God's plan, God's path to saving us? And he says that God revealed these things by, verse 10, his spirit. For the spirit searches everything and shows us God's deep secrets. Verse 11, he says, no one can know a person's thoughts except a person's own spirit. No one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. For we have received God's spirit, so we know that, that the wonderful things God has freely given to us. So if you think of it this way, in order for you and I to actually get to know each other, we would actually have to sit down and begin to dialogue. I mean, I could write a letter. You can write a letter back to me. That takes a long time. It's cumbersome. But if the best way for us to really get to know someone, or so it's going on a long walk, or sit down and have some uh, coffee, or have a nice big meal, and you spend some time exchanging secrets. That's how you get to know anybody. Does that make sense? In other words, there needs to be this exchange whereby you breathe out, and as you breathe out, you speak. You use language and vocabulary, and you share what's in your heart. You share about life challenges. You share about some of the things that have been difficult for you. You share about your life, and then in exchange, they share about their life, and they share about how they responded. They might relate to that, and they might, you know, they might uh, correlate by basically saying, I went through the same thing. Now you've got this connection, and there's this like deep emotional connection going on between you that this medium of sharing comes through speaking. Speaking comes through breath. Breath is pneuma, pneuma, ruach, the breath, the life of God coming out and exchanging information that now you're getting to know this person, they're getting to know you. Relationships beginning to form. And and Paul's looking at this saying, how do we know anything about God? And Paul's response is, we know about God because the Holy Spirit is the medium, the one that speaks, that communicates who God is, reveals to us who God is, that the Holy Spirit is the one that comes back and reveals to us what God is like and who God is. So how and why? Because the Holy Spirit knows all things. In other words, he's filled with omniscience. Again, another characteristic or attribute of who God is. So my point again in summary, to this little section here, is that all the attributes of Yahweh... Actually, I, th- I think someone told me I had a typo. Is there a typo on here? Any typo freaks out there? No? Is there anything on this side? Okay, it's the next one then. Okay, I'm just, I'm just covering my bases. No? We'll get to it. I'm sure those of you typo freaks who point those things out will find it. So, uh, anyways, the point that I would make is this, is that what we have is... All of these attributes that God has are also shared by the Holy Spirit. So the second thing I want to take a look at, not only are the attributes of Yahweh shared by the Holy Spirit, but also the actions of Yahweh are shared by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to think of it this way, the things that God does are also attributed, is it right here? No? Okay. Someone sees it, just, just, just you can raise your hand or whatever, that's fine. Uh, so anyway, I think it's a pretty bad one because the one that someone shared it with me, but you no, I don't think it, that's it. Are those misspelled? Okay. Anyways, sorry, go ahead. I'm all insecure now. So the next thing is that we begin to take a look at some of the actions of God are also the actions that are shared by the Holy Spirit. So here's a couple of them. For one, we see that God is the creator, but also the Holy Spirit 
creates all things. He works in creation. He's the maker of creation, the Holy Spirit. So take a look at Psalm 104. It says, 30 through 31, that when you send forth the Spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. It says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever, and may the Lord rejoice in his works. Again, the idea that's being attributed here is that the Holy Spirit is the maker of creation. So in other words, the work of God, chiefest of work of God, which is making all things, all things that are visible, were made from that which is invisible. God created, God designed it, God made it, God fashioned it. But we're also told that the Holy Spirit also was there. So this is why we would say, why we would use language of the triunity of God, that we're also told in the New Testament that Jesus was part of this creation, the creative process. Jesus also created all things. So we see that the Holy Spirit is given the same are shown, revealed to, have, uh, working out the same actions as Yahweh. The second thing we see is that he's also the giver of life. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. This great passage out of Job describes it this way. It says, Job 33. He says, for the Spirit of God made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So the idea here is that the Holy Spirit is the one that gives life. God is the one that gives life. So if you think of it this way, none of us, have the ability to actually create life out of non-life. I mean, we have this, go through this crazy process somehow, a male and a female, and birds and bees, you all get the idea, so we can create life. But that's not the same way in which God created life, right? It's not the same way in which God created life. God creates life by just speaking it into existence. And we're told that the Holy Spirit does the same thing. The Holy Spirit has the same uh, actions of Yahweh. And then thirdly, we see that he's the revealer. This is, this is actually the typo. Can anybody get it? Reveler. Is that bad? It's pretty bad, huh? Is that blasphemous? God is the reveler of mysteries? Isn't reveler like a bad word? It is a bad word, huh? Anyways, back on track. Okay, anyways, the word is supposed to be revealer. God is, the the Holy Spirit is the revealer of mysteries. Again, we kind of already looked at this, but the fact of the matter is there are things that we don't know about God, yet the Holy Spirit reveals to us those things. He's the revealer of these mysteries. So what's, the means by which God reveals these things. We're told it's the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Second uh, Peter actually describes. He says that no prophecy in Scripture ever came by a prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. So what Peter tells us is that the Holy Spirit is actually the means by which God reveals his heart, the mysteries, the things that we didn't know formerly about God have been made known. Now, the question is, can we know everything there is to be known about God? No, of course not. It would be impossible. So the reality is, is none of us are ever going to fully, thoroughly know the whole entire mind of God. But we will be revealed things about God, especially for us in this life right now, things that we need in order to live in this life with a sense of equilibrium and poise, as opposed to being broken, as opposed to falling down, as opposed to crumbling apart. God gives us everything that we need, the way described in the New Testament, for life and godliness. So God reveals to us things about himself. So, in finishing this little section here, I want to look at one other final verse, kind of a bonus verse here to think about the correlation between the Holy Spirit and God comes up in the book of Acts. It's kind of a little background story that I'll tell you a little bit about before I kind of read this, because if I just read it out of its context, it might not make a lot of sense and be kind of weird. But the story is, if you're familiar with it, there's this couple in the early church named Ananias and Sapphira. And what we can kind of piece together based upon the story is that this early church, this early couple in the early church, were part of the early church. They had, people were basically bringing their money and giving it to the church. And that money was then being redistributed to those that had needs. So I would imagine uh, people that were doing 
training and discipleship work, were being able to live off of that, and others that were poor, others that needed uh, to pay their rent, that needed money to be able to live, to give food for their kids, um, that they were then redistributing that money back out to the church. And so there seemed to be a common practice in the church. And there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they, they had a piece of property that they sold. So they bring the money to the apostles, and so we're told that they laid it at their feet, and they said, here's, here's what we sold the piece of property for, and we're giving this generously because we love Jesus, we love you guys, we're giving this to you guys. But what Peter gets is this really strange scenario where, for some reason, we don't know how Peter knew this, uh, where some, our assumption is that somehow Peter, God just revealed this to Peter, but Peter basically, in his mind, or God reveals to him, that this guy was not being honest. So the issue, one, is one of dishonesty, There's, it's lying. It's appearing to be greater, more spiritual than really they are by way of using the vehicle of lying. And really, the, the freakishly weird thing about all this is every one of us are guilty of this. All right, I mean, think about this. If, if God mobilized the same means which he did in the first century, how many of us would actually uh, incur the exact same scenario that happened upon these guys? So if you're unfamiliar with the story, what happens is God kills them. Or you're like, they show up at church and they're like, they're dead. Both of them, first the husband, then or first the wife and then the husband, or whatever, I can't remember the order. But the point of the matter, they both die. God strikes them dead because they are lying before God. Can you imagine showing up at church and be like, I love Jesus, and God's like, kills you right there because you don't love Jesus. You might profess you love Jesus with your words, but your actions, your life, everything else about you is nothing but a lie, and you're dead. Like, welcome to church. <laughs> like, you would imagine that church would not make the books for, like, mega church growth, Right? Like, these are not the methods and the means to expand your church and become a megachurch. They're not opening, like, campuses all around the region just to simply mobilize towards something like this because this, it would send the fear of God in them. Like, look, don't play games. Don't play games with God. That's the point. But here's the passage. And then Peter said to Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit. So, again, notice that phrase. You lied to, who did he lie to? The Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or, or not sell as you wish. In other words, there was no compulsion, no force you to do it. You didn't have to give the money, but you came, and what you did is dishonorable. And he says, and after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? And this is the main emphasis. Is you, weren't lying, uh, you weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. So the important takeaway from this is that in the early church, according to the apostles, there was a link between Yahweh and the Holy Spirit. That lying to the Holy Spirit was synonymous with lying to Yahweh. The takeaway is this, is that to understand how did the... So let's put it this way. When we approach the Bible, we have a tendency to approach the Bible and be like, well, I'm going to read into the Scriptures what I want to read in the Scriptures. And and I would suggest that's that's not a good way to read the Bible. It's a horrible way to actually read the Bible because what happens if you create a God in your own image in your own likeness, a God that suits your sensibilities. When your life begins to fray and crumble apart and things begin to break apart or you've got sin and sin is defiling you, that God, that God that you created cannot save you. There's one simple reason why that God you created cannot save you. It's because simply he doesn't exist. You made him up. So this is one of the reasons why we say this all the time. We have to let the scripture reveal to us who God is. And it might rub our sensibilities wrong. It may contradict the way that we thought about God. It may even, to some degree, make us frustrated because it's like, 
how can God do this? How can God kill Ananias and Sapphira like at the early church service? Like that's, that's, not, that's not fair. That's not nice. Think about it what you may, but it happened. This is the God who created all things. He obviously doesn't like it when we lie. He obviously takes great offense to the fact that when we live in duplicity, he obviously takes great offense of the fact that when we say one thing with our lips and we do something entirely different with our life, that there is an incongruency about that that God finds greatly displeasurable. We can argue with that. We can be frustrated with that. We can toss it off to the side. Or we can simply wrestle with it and align our hearts by way of repentance to this God and say, God, I don't get you. I don't understand you. But I submit to you. That's hard. That's challenging. That's difficult. It's not easy. But that's, but again, let me put it this way. All of us in our lives allow something to lead us, to guide us, to mobilize us, to move us. Let me put it another way. Every one of us have something that fills our hearts, fills our minds, shapes our thinking. We live according to some narrative. Not all narratives lead to the same place. Some narratives have longer shelf lives than others. In other words, they provide a greater, longer, sustainable, or seemingly sustainable amount of joy that comes back. At some point, every narrative, apart from the narrative of the scripture, of what God says, and announces through gospel, will lead to a place of death and destruction. And so our lives are you're going to be filled with this God that breathes life and transforms chaos into order and takes disharmony and makes beautiful music out of it or takes ugliness and reshapes it into something wonderful. Or we will continue to live our lives according to a narrative that leads to death and brokenness. At some point, every other narrative, other than the narrative of God, has an expiration date on it, and it will self-destruct at some point. And when it self-destructs, you'll self-destruct with it. That's one of the reasons why oftentimes when we find ourselves clinging to something, or like say, for example, an alcoholic, and this is one of the most blatant you know, examples on the big E, I chart, is that when somebody like that lives their lives for something so devoted, giving money, giving time, giving energy to, and when it lets them down, and their whole life falls apart and self-destructs, everybody else around them self-destructs with them emotionally, painfully, because of the process, that becomes sort of the possibility of, of newness of life, to basically make new life decisions, to get rid of old paths of life, old habits that have led to destruction, and adopt new habits of life that lead to life. And this is what the gospel calls us to say will we accept will we trust the narrative that god calls us to so what we see is that the holy spirit reveals to us things of who god is so uh the apostles they would have seen the holy spirit as god so in other words everything the holy spirit does is everything that god himself does it's important to understand this because really what we say as followers of jesus we're not followers of making up this story as we go. We, we are people that go back to the scriptures. We go back to what the, the teachings of the apostles had said. And we, we want to understand. We want to learn from what they had to say. And whatever it is that they had to say, we, we really want to ask ourselves, do, do we believe those things? And if they're true, how have they actually impacted and affected our hearts and our lives? That's why we would say, basically, we follow the apostolic teachings, or we want to follow the apostolic teachings. I mean, we are oftentimes coming and approaching the Bible with sort of a cacophony of ideas and concepts 
some of which need to be deconstructed and removed and destroyed and completely obliterated, and others need to be redefined, and some of which need to basically be aligned with who God is, is what God says. And so one of the things that we want to focus on in this little series is that what we see, nonetheless, about the Holy Spirit, that he is God himself. So why, why does this matter? Final thing is, why does this matter? Gordon Fee, uh, again, I referenced him earlier, just amazing New Testament scholar. Um, he's written really kind of like the definitive book on the subject of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's about a thousand pages. It's this massive tome that he's written. He's devoted his life. He's actually uh, just an amazing man of God, a pastor, a lover of God. So he's, he's written some amazing stuff about the person of the Holy Spirit, some of the ways in which uh, his teachings have kind of been disseminated in the modern world. If you're familiar with like systematic theology by a guy named Wayne Grudem and other guys like that, uh, they've learned uh, extensively from uh, the teachings of uh, Gordon Fee. Um, and again, there's just some amazing teachings that come through this guy. But one of the things he describes is that there are basically three urgencies, and I just want to finish with these three urgencies that we really need to consider. One is not taking the role of the Holy Spirit seriously within the Godhead. In other words, we simply reduce him down to just simply non-existent. And oftentimes there's an argument that goes something like this. Well, the Holy Spirit uh, is sort of um, quiet. He's a silent member of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he never draws attention to himself. And on one hand, there's some truth to that because... Jesus himself said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will draw attention to me. He will shine glory upon me. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit, the way Fee uh, uh, would basically describe, is that by no way, shape, or form is the Holy Spirit trying to intentionally duck out and not be observed throughout the major narrative of the Bible. Because, for example, you can't read the book of Acts without reading about the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's always coming into play. There, there, he's always working, always moving. You can't read the epistles of Paul without reading regular, or in, regularly ingesting the Holy Spirit throughout the writings of Paul. The Holy Spirit is absolutely important. So one of our dangers is we simply don't take the role of the Holy Spirit serious enough or we reduce him down to a point of non-essentiality. Second thing is that not seeing the Holy Spirit as a person or personal. And the danger here is to basically see him as nothing more than a power that I need to tap into or an emotional experience that I want to feel. To simply reduce him to nothing more than a power or a feeling or an emotion. He's a person. He wants to interact with us. What that means is they want to coach and guide and lead and direct our lives. I like to think of the personal Holy Spirit like this. In the book of Isaiah, it describes when, when, when God made these promises that one of these days he was going to uh, transform this world as we know it. And the way he was going to do this was he was going to send a servant. His servant would come. And his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus comes into this world as Emmanuel. God, Yahweh, is with us. Living the full experience of humanity. And the reality is what we see with, with Jesus is that obviously Jesus is not with us today. He's not here right now. In fact, Jesus even said, look, I have to go away. I'm going to ascend to the Father. I'm going to go be next to the Father. But it's good for me to go, because, or it's good for you that I'm going to go, because if I don't go, then the Holy Spirit will not come. But if I do go, the Holy Spirit then will come. So I like to think of the Holy Spirit kind of like this, even though there's no like, real clear biblical verse, but I kind of think of it this way. The Holy Spirit is God with us, Emmanuel, though not the same word, but the Holy Spirit is God with us, not in the person of Jesus, but in the body of Christ, the church. The Holy Spirit is here, now, presently, currently, with us. Finally, is that not fully appreciating the Holy Spirit as the very presence of God. What that means, in summary, 
said, do we really believe that the very presence of God that brings our chaos into order is here? Do we really believe that the very presence of God that removes our defilement of sin and rebellion and makes us white as snow is actually here right now? Or do we just simply come to church and hear a sermon? Look, the fact of the matter is, is that there's all these studies going on right now, in, in, in America at least, especially in the West, but more so in America, basically saying that millennials are dropping out of church like never before, or not even going to church, or they're even describing them as, as, as nuns, meaning they don't have any type of affiliation or association, or duns. They're done with church. They're like done. They're dropping out. And, and I think there's, I mean, there's been all sorts of cultural studies as to why. I think one of the reasons is, is because people have come to recognize or see church as being nothing more than an intellectual engagement. Check this out. If that's all it is, why come? You can just go get drop, listen to a podcast. But if gathering is a way of celebrating the risen Christ, who's alive in the hearts of the people of God, celebrating the communion as a way of ingesting the body of Christ in our hearts, not in a weird metaphysical sense, but in a very real, tangible, sign type of a sense that we gather together to experience the living God by the Holy Spirit in our presence, then what that does, that redefines why we even get together. What that means is that we have a God that when he meets with us, he wants to set us free from the things that bind us. He wants to heal us from the things that wound us. He wants to help us in those things that crush us because something powerful happens when God's people gather. The Holy Spirit is here. Do we come with this expectancy that God is here? God, the healing God. God, the restorative God. God, the cleansing God is here to reorient our hearts, our lives towards him. So I want to finish with the same question I finished with last week. Are you thirsty for that? Do you look at your life and just see that there is areas of brokenness, there are pockets of disorderliness, there are areas in your life that can only be described as disorientation? Do you believe that God can actually reorient your heart? Do you believe that God can actually cleanse and purge and wash away the brokenness? Do you believe that God can actually lift the burden, the weights that are crushing you? Because that's, that's what we should have is this expectancy that God, this God is not just out there. We've got to go find him. We've got to go search him, work hard to get him. That this God is actually here, drawn near us in this place, in our midst. So I want to respond. What should our response really be? Well, really the question should be, guys will come up and I'll lead. But the, re- the question would be is, okay, if, if, if God is... If God is ultimately great, all-powerful, all-knowing, if God is all of these things, and this God is actually not distanced himself from us, but is actually drawn near, if this God has not simply shunned us or run from us or declared war on us, if this God actually has done the exact opposite, rather than declaring war, this God has declared peace. the response that we should have to this God that has declared peace to us who've been at war should be one of overwhelming affection, worship, white, hot, passionate, love, gratitude, thankfulness back to this God. So we're going to respond to this God.
So why don't we all stand? What I want to do is I'm going I'm to do what kind of I did last week. Um, if you're here this morning and in your heart, you look at yourself, you look at your life, and you may feel drought. And I don't mean drought out there in California. I mean drought in here. I mean drought in your soul. You feel it. There's all these amazing passages where actually Isaiah and Jeremiah describe that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will take drought-ridden land, drought-ridden lives, and it'll be like rivers of fresh water washing over them. If you're here this morning, you just feel like that's you. Maybe you lack wisdom. You're trying to figure out, make sense of things in your life that don't make any sense. Go to God. God, through the Holy Spirit, gives wisdom. doesn't mean he's going to give you every answer. Don't... Don't in any way think that that's the case, but he may at least, if anything, give you grace to work through this current challenge. If that's you here this morning, what we did last week, and I want to do it again this week, if that's you, when I'm, I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I want you to just, by the posture of your body, lift up your hands like this. This is a way of basically saying, I am an empty cup that really wants to be filled. In fact, let me restate that. We are not empty cups. We are people that come filled. We are people that come filled with false presuppositions about God. We are people that come filled with crap that needs to be emptied out. How does God empty us out? He does it by replacing, by washing out and restoring, by taking disorderliness and bringing about life, by taking chaos and restoring into something that's orderly, by taking our disorientation and reorienting our heart towards God, by taking our desires that have actually misled us and driven us far away from God and given us new desires that love Him. How many of us actually have desires in our hearts right now that are actually misleading you? They're lying to you. They're deceiving you. You keep following Him. And how many of you have tried so hard to change those desires, but you can't? Because you know what you need? You need a new heart. It's the Holy Spirit that gives new hearts. So if you're here, you're thirsty, you need that, I invite you to just lift up your hands. Lift them up to God. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing respond. We have communion in the back. And all three little stations back. There's a way of reminding us. The reason why we come to this God is because we have a God that has made himself vulnerable to us. He's come to us. We eat the bread. We drink the cup as a way of saying that this is how God has come. He's come vulnerable. He's broken, poured out. So that means that we can bring our brokenness and pour ourselves out before this God. He doesn't crush us. He gives us life. Let me pray. Let's respond. Let's raise our hands if you feel like that's you. Let's just sing. So God, right now we come. We come saying we're thirsty. We come saying that we want to have the garbage flushed from our hearts and our lives. False ideas, false notions, uh, emotions, feelings, sin. Defilement, God, we want all that stuff washed out and renewed and replaced with your spirit, which gives us new desires, new life. So respond in worship.